Thank you, Nigel. Okay, so first off, uh, not deliberate mistake, non-deliberate mistake. What's up there? What is it saying that is wrong? It's not Luke 13, it's Luke 18. Okay, so first page, what a good start. Okay, <laughs> so good morning, everybody. Um, this is parables, parables 2, uh, 2 out of 5. But parables played, a, and we'll only just cover in August, I think probably seven or eight parables at most. But parables played a big part. So could you click, Nigel, to the next screen? And we want to interpret parables. Um, there, oh, Anybody? Can anyone tell me how many parables they think Jesus is recorded as saying in the Gospels? Have a guess. Anybody? Be brave. It's not something I knew. Anybody? Have a guess? No? Tom? 35. Not bad. Any, any advance on 35? Advance on 35. 48. Gary, that's... Pretty good. Somewhere, Nigel, please click. Somewhere between 40 and 50 parables. Um, the reason I don't know if it's 48, I do know it's over 35, but um, is that I looked up someone who had a, a list of all the parables and tell you what, the first parable, the parable of knock, 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 I need some bread because my pals have arrived, that didn't include, that wasn't even in the list. So, if it looks like a parable, smells like a parable, it's a parable. So there's somewhere between 40 and 50 parables. Because there's so many, it's quite clear that this is an important part of the way Jesus is revealing uh, the kingdom of God, reve revealing the nature of God, and teaching about the principles of the kingdom. So parables are important. But, Nigel, he says... They are hidden. I mean, there's lots of references to this, but I'll just read you. Quite a few of them occur in Matthew 13. Jesus says, he's quoting uh, Isaiah, You shall hear, but not understand. You shall see, but not perceive. And then he goes on, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden from the foundation of of the earth. So parables are not absolutely clear, cast iron, laid down, black and white. They are open and they need to be interpreted and there are lots of them. Now last week, Nigel told us, please Nigel, um, that for 95% of church history, the main way these parables were interpreted was in an allegorical way, which means um, people were assigned, significance was given to all sorts of little things. Something that I didn't know that Nigel said last week was that in the parable of the Good Samaritan, I'll get this right, was I listening, the two coins that the Good Samaritan gave to the innkeeper represented the Father and the Holy Spirit. The father and the son. Okay, got that wrong. I wasn't listening. But there's, you know, it's just the two. He just gave them two coins. And then about 100 years ago, um, again, I need to check with Nigel, this guy, a German guy, 
um, called Julica, Julica, very good, okay, said that we should see parables not wholly, um, sorry, we, we should see parables as analogies. I read one or two things that said, Julica, who said analogies is what parables really are, they are making a point, and the, the incidental bits like, did the donkey trip over a piece of stick on his way, and the guy nearly, you know, those kind of incidental things weren't really important. But what I was reading was it said, well, you can't wholly discount the uh, analogy. Um, you can't see them wholly as analogies. Sometimes there is a little bit of an allegorical, and you can consign characters to some of the characters in the, in the parable. They're not just allegorical. They're not only analogies, but there's sometimes a little bit of mix in both of them. But what you were saying, next one, Nigel, is that there is usually, there is usually one main message. Not always. Sometimes there are one or two, but there are usually, there's usually just one main message in a parable. Now, some of you uh, will know that uh, for a better part of 40 years, I was a science teacher in secondary school. And uh, science teachers uh, often bang their head against the wall when people aren't uh, understanding things, Sandy, that they're trying to teach. Um, And so what they resort to is they resort to analogies. Now, if you could click on the next one. So we, I have used analogies in science. Here's an analogy. What do you think that is representing? Anybody. It's an analogy of something. Nobody's. What? All of knowledge. All of knowledge, okay. No, much more pedestrian than that. Let me give you another example. Nigel, again, one more click. That is an analogy of the same thing. What do you think? Anybody? Very, no, very mundane can of baked beans. So if you look at it end on, can you go back? You can. You look at it end on, it looks like that, doesn't it? But if you look at it side on, looks like what? Looks like that. Is that okay? So a picture or an analogy will have a shortcoming. Yes, Vince. Vincent. Ask dragon as children. Um, so an analogy is useful, but it's not often or always the whole thing. In fact, they made two analogies that are both valid, may look contradictory. So you need to be aware. Now, keep it there, Nigel, for a moment. Who said atoms? Um, Yvonne said atoms. Now, When teaching about atoms to little ones, they go, what's an atom? And uh, so from a physicist's perspective, it's got a nucleus and it's got 
uh, electrons kind of somewhere near it, orbiting around perhaps. But people use, science teachers use the analogy, some do, of the solar system. They say, well, an, ap- an atom is a bit like the solar system. In the solar system, we've got the sun in the middle, and the planets go round and round the sun. And so in an atom, you have a nucleus, uh, which is positive, and the electrons go round and round the um, nucleus and make an atom. So you use the analogy of a solar system to talk about atoms. However, there are quite a few shortcomings to that analogy. First of all, there are lots of them, um, not just a few of them. First of all, um, all our planets aren't the same size, but electrons are pretty much the same size. Um, our planets are attracted to each other. Our planets have moons going round them. Some of them, some do, some don't. Electrons don't have things going round them. The planets, uh, I'll get too technical, I'm not careful. The planets orbit in a plane. It's called the plane of the ecliptic. So there's the sun in the middle, Mercury goes round like that, Mars, Jupiter, all of them go round in the same sort of plane, whereas a, an atom is a sort of three-dimensional ball. So the analogy has got lots of shortcomings, but it's useful in that it makes the point. So click on again, please, Nigel. So we've got had analogies in science. They only need to make one really useful point. Next one, please. Now, Jesus was talking in parables, mostly, not exclusively, but mostly to ordinary people in Galilee and Judea and around the the area. These people weren't educated. These people were normal uh, peasants. They were kind of trodden down. And Jesus uses um, a topical, things that people know about. First parable, we've run out of food. Somebody's turned up. What do we do about it? We've got a crisis. He uses idiom. Now, I couldn't resist this. I was, uh, couldn't resist this. Joel, Joel is going to come and rescue me. Um, he is, could you do the next one, Nigel, please? Uh, this is, I only understand the train station. Now, I am told, this is, Joel is our wonderful German speaker this morning. Um, you've heard of this, Paro? In German, what is it? Ich verstehe nur Bahnhof. Ich, say again, speak louder. Ich, ich verstehe, verstehe nur, nur Bahnhof. Bahnhof. I only understand the train. No, I don't understand the train station. Do you understand the train station? Now, that's a German idiom, which Joel will correct me, or anybody else who's a native German speaker, which means... I know where we are at the moment, but I don't know what's coming next. What's next down the line? What train are we catching? Where are we going? Where does this go from here? In English, it doesn't translate. <laughs> right, so uh, analogies, if they incorporate idioms, they might be very difficult to understand. But something that we should realize is that analogies... Analogies will be consistent and parables will be consistent with all the other things that Jesus said. The Sermon on the Mount, uh, talking to his disciples, 
preaching in the synagogues, those things will be consistent with parables. If you're trying to make Jesus say something or stand for something in a parable that's not reflected elsewhere, then perhaps you're on shaky ground. And to be fair, I have heard people standing here, uh, on that plank, on one of these planks here, interpret a parable in a way that I profoundly disagreed with. And so it's down to you lot. If you disagree with what I'm saying, you need to talk to this guy here and say, John didn't know what he was talking about. And in some ways, if that is true, I want to know that. Now, as a a young Christian, which is a while ago now, I was very nervous about praying in public, praying out loud in a meeting like this, or even in a small group, very nervous about it. And the scientist in me, God was kicking the scientist in me, eventually got and said, why don't you just do it? And if you totally mess up, then the people who are listening to you have got to say, John got this totally wrong. Let's pray for him that he gets it right in the future. But that kind of hard-nosed, and if I'm getting it wrong, I kind of want to know from you if you think I'm getting it wrong. So we're all kind of learning together. Anyway, um, let's go on. The parables often have lots of characters in them. And in fact, Nigel said last week that they are about, they're not stories, they're not, what did you call them? Not fables, uh, but they are about people doing real things that people could be imagined to be doing. They often include, da powerful people. So Jesus was mostly talking to peasants. He was mostly talking to people at the bottom of the heap. They weren't literate. They didn't have a lot of power. And often the people who you hate, if you're at the bottom of the pile, are the powerful people. The kings, the rulers, the masters, the landowners. If you're a tenant farmer and somebody takes your money and you're almost in bondage and slavery, these people don't get a a good press. Next one, please, Nigel. So they are often depicted by Jesus as bad people, oppressors. They can be harsh. They can be vindictive. They can... Uh, sow, how does it go? A reap where they do not sow. They can do nasty things. Um, there's a, a parable about a wedding feast, and the king invites people to the wedding feast. Uh, he sends out the invitations, and then when it's ready, he says, Come to the wedding feast. And they go, Ah, oh, sorry, not coming. Sorry, not coming. Sorry, not coming. So the king says, sends his army out, and he kills them all. It's not very nice. You don't go to the party, you end up getting assassinated. But then he does something nice. He goes out and invites all the people, all the peasants. So a king would have invited powerful mates to his party. They turned him down, so he had them all destroyed. He then invites ordinary people like the people who are listening, and they are made welcome at the feast. So these people Kings and rulers, often nasty, but sometimes they do something quite positive. Next again, please, Nigel. So Jesus delivered these um, uh, parables. It was funny. It appealed to their sense of humor. There was irony. He, he 
depicted the, the powerful people in unsupported ways. Sometimes it's entertaining, shocking, all sorts of things. The stories are fantastic stories and they live on today. Now, there are 40 or 50 of them, and we're only going to cover a few. But if you could bear in mind some of these principles when you're looking at other parables, it really helps. Sometimes, I said it's usually only one topic, but sometimes there is a twist in the tale or a subplot. Probably the, one of the most famous parables of all, Good Samaritan Parable, is about the Samaritan who was despised even by the peasants being the hero but the villains the villains were the levite and the priest and of course what we don't quite often pick up is that the levite and the priest jesus was very harsh in his dealings with uh, religious people And what this Levite and priest is, if they walk by, we all know the story, the parable, they walk by on the other side. It doesn't actually say, but the people there would have understood that the priests and Levites were very keen on all the laws that they had. And they were keen to maintain what they called their ceremonial cleanliness. They didn't want to become ceremonially unclean because there were lots of things that they had to do in the temple and so on they weren't allowed to do. So one of the things that you get is the, the rules override the principle. So these priests and Levites perhaps, doesn't say they were, perhaps they were uh, avoiding it because they could have become ceremonially unclean. This got Jesus into a lot of trouble. There was one time when he was walking down the road uh, and somebody, uh, a, was he a leader of a synagogue, Jairus? Yeah. Um, approached him and said, my daughter is very sick. Will you come and bring healing to my daughter? And while he was going, there was a woman who'd had uh, trouble menstruating and uh, she touched Jesus' cloak. And Luke tells it, Luke's a doctor, and no, but he was, she was healed straight away. And then Jesus didn't just kind of pretend it didn't happen, he drew attention to it. And of course, if she was touching Jesus, then Jesus would have become ceremonially unclean. So Jairus, who was an elder of the synagogue, we don't want Jesus, who's ceremonially unclean now, coming anywhere near my daughter. And then news comes that his daughter's dead, but Jesus goes in and brings her back to life. And the heart of God to do good and bring life must override the rules. And that was often a point of conflict for Jesus. Next one, please, Nigel. The rule of parables that I was re, uh, listening to um, Greg Boyd. Some of you will have heard of Greg Boyd. He has, Nigel, please. Um, he says, in parables, when you see bad people unexpectedly unexpe- uh, doing bad things, they are not examples of the kingdom of God. But when you see these bad people unexpectedly 
doing good things, those are, are examples of the kingdom of God. And I think that's quite a nice way of uh, rounding it all up so that we know that God is a God who is good. It's, uh, in, we'll come to it in the passage that we're looking at. But that's an underlining principle. Different characters sometimes behave in ways that represent God's kingdom, and sometimes, a bit later on in a parable, they don't. And then they do, and then they don't. It, it flips. So it's not just, this is this person, this donkey is this, this king is this. It's not like that, Nigel. So we go on to Luke 13. Luke 13 goes like this. It's a simple story. One click, please. So there's an unexpected, it could be any unexpected event. It was one of your pals turned up late and wanted something to eat. So you need some help, uh, but you haven't got anything to feed them. You need some help. You go and ask a friend, you pray about it. What does your friend do? Initially, you get a negative response. It's too late. Go away. But the person is persistent. They persist. They keep pushing. And in the end, they get a positive outcome. It could be bread. It could be anything. Is that all right? There was a lot of persistence, but it was quite a short time frame. If this took days or weeks, it would have no point. But it's quite a short time frame, and the person who is trying to get some bread from, for their visitor keeps pushing. And although the uh, neighbor, the friend, doesn't feel like it, they respond. When you turn this and look deeper into this, thank you, Nigel, again, there are some unusual things about this parable. Now, mostly, parables were taught um, to the peasants, to everybody. But this is a parable, you read it, that was given to the disciples, and Jesus gave an interpretation of it at the same time. It's in the context of they see Jesus living a life the way we all ought to, and they see prayer as being a very important part of that life. He had been praying in the beginning of, let me turn to it, in the beginning of Luke Luke 11, it said, and he had been praying, and after he'd finished, they said, we need to learn to do this as well. And you get a familiar, um, they say, we need to learn to pray. We need to, this is an important thing that we need to pick up on. We need to be able to do this to be in touch with God. And it's a familiar structure. It's kind of the Lord's Prayer in, in microcosm. Uh, Hallowed be your name. Lift up that God is holy. Your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, interestingly, the give is not give us a freezer full of sirloin steak and all the rest of it. It's just give us our daily bread. So it's immediate needs. Um, forgive us, but it's not just forgive us, it's forgive us as we're forgiven. Okay, so it's developing um, a trait. It's lead us, but not into temptation. Now, Scripture says after Jesus was baptized by John, he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy. Lead us, but 
not into temptation. And then Jesus goes on to say at the end, you who are evil, you're just, you do good things. People do do good things, and God will give uh, good gifts to those who ask him. Next parable. This is Luke 18, and I got it right this time. So this is the same sort of story, slightly different. It's not a sudden emergency has arisen, but someone is experiencing ongoing oppression. Again, it's nothing they can do about it. This is a widow. This is a powerless person. It's in a, a society where if you're a widow, you've really got nobody shouting on your side. And so she goes to seek some help. We pray. If you've got uh, someone being oppressed, you pray and you ask God to bring uh, deliverance. We're talking about Hong Kong just recently, just earlier on today. Um, And you call on the judge. Now, the judges were important people in Israeli history. God didn't really want Israel or Jewish nation to have kings. Judges were what they had, and they administered the law. But this is a, a bad judge. This is an unjust judge. So not necessarily portraying what God would be like or how God would respond, but it's a, a, an initially she gets a negative response. The judge says, I can't be bothered to do this. Now you get the impression, I don't want to read too much into it, and if you feel that like I am, please have a word with this man. Um, he does do the right thing in the end. He doesn't go and see the oppressors and say, give me a backhander and I'll rule against her and we'll call it quits. He does do the right thing in the end. Um, I imagine she was, but she kept pushing. I don't know, I'm sure she didn't go just once. In the story, it sort of implies that she kept on asking and eventually the judge says, all right, I've had enough. Here's the judgment and the persistence pays off. There are some unusual things about this. Please, Again, it's given to the disciples. Let me read the first little bit uh, about this one. This is Luke 18. It says, Jesus told them, that's the disciples, a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart or give up. In a certain city, there was uh, a judge who neither feared God, and then we go into the story. But it's set in the context that Jesus told them this parable so that they should keep praying and not give up. So it was given to the disciples. The interpretation actually comes before the parable. What Jesus said was keep praying and don't give up. And then he tells a parable to illustrate that. It's the other way round. And then there's a bit, I have to confess, I don't really understand because we do pray for things and we don't sometimes see outcomes that we're expecting. But Jesus does say, and I'll read it again to you, Nigel read it out. Um, and And Jesus said, hear what the unrighteous God judge says. He did. And will not God vindicate those that vindicate his people? who cry out to him day and night. Will he delay a long time over them? I tell you, he will vindicate them speedily. And that would suggest that it comes 
instantly, but we're already saying persistence. It's all, Jesus said he told them this parable so that they should keep on praying and not give up. And sometimes we're, we're tempted to pray for something and nothing happens, um, so we give up. We live in a fairly instant society. Now, if you want something, you click on it, and it's there. You want to pick up a video clip, you click on it. We live in an instant society. Now, I'm old enough, looking around the room, um, the, Paul's not, yeah, Paul's still here, he's older than me, um, Rod, probably, one, one or two people, but I'm old enough to remember a saying that came in, in the, probably in the 1970s, that was like a, a bomb in the middle of persistence. It, was, it said, take the waiting out of wanting. All right? It was a catchphrase for... For what? Barclay card. Yeah, credit card. Um, it was a catchphrase for... Sorry? Well, I, I thought it was the access card rather than the Barclay card, but it was a credit card, okay? Yeah, I'll let you two discuss that over lunch, all right? <laughs> But Yvonne's right, it's a credit card, but I think it was the access card, MasterCard, access. They didn't call it access, yes. Um, take the waiting out of wanting. And that idea of saving up and persisting and putting in the hard graft, kind of, you can have it now, but you end up in debt. And so the, kind of the, the instant society has kind of crept in. There's something else I wanted to say about instant society, and that's completely gone out of my head. But we live in an a instantaneous society. Um, can you just black that for a moment and bring it back in? A, is that, does that work? Brilliant. Something I wanted to share is how does that work for us? We do know we pray for things and sometimes they don't happen straight away or they don't happen the way we pray they should. All sorts of things don't seem to tie up. Now I don't fully understand why Jesus says in that, at the end of that parable, why will Jesus, God delay? He will vindicate you speedily. But just one or two instances. I heard that when, no, I'll do it this way around. We were praying, a whole bunch of us were for praying for a very serious situation. I'm going to make it kind of anonymous very serious situation that we wanted to see God's goodness, God's uh, breakthrough, God's revelation come in and kind of swamp the whole thing. And I was praying about it. I got the impression that God says, sometimes you don't get supernatural happenings, supernatural breakthrough, because it can do damage to the people through whom I bring that revelation or release that supernatural power. I heard somebody else say, we often pray for people at the end of a meeting, and it might be appropriate if there are people that want us to pray for you at the end of the meeting to do that. But we often pray for people at the end of the meeting, and the preacher was talking about this, was saying, because we've been 
lifting up God, because we'd be saying, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, then it puts us in a frame of mind that means it's safer for us, for God to do supernatural things. Because the temptation, say, oh, when I prayed, this person was healed. When I prayed, this happened. There is a temptation there, and sometimes God is restrained. I was in such a situation at the end of a meeting, praying for somebody who got a bad back. And I don't know quite what the circumstances were, but that person uh, moved house or was moving on um, almost immediately, and I really never saw them again. Until 10 years later, this guy Pete, I happened to be, I think, at a Bible week somewhere, he said, John, you know when you, and I can't remember who it was, uh, pray for my back, it's been fine ever since. Never had any back problems. But I didn't know about it, which is probably a good thing. But we did it at the end of a meeting. There was another time, and uh, I really can't remember whether it was this man or whether it was Andy Parnham, for those of you who know Andy Parnham. But one is either Nigel or Andy and I were praying for somebody. And they were saying, oh, I feel really down. I feel really depressed. I don't know why. So we started praying for them. And gradually... God revealed to us that this guy got a problem in his life. And if he could ask God to help him with this problem or confront it or be willing to get some counselling on it, then that's a, a route to having a solution and being made whole. And you know what? The guy got really angry. He got really angry because I know that's what the problem is. But God showed us what the problem Now maybe, and in that case, we were insensitive. I was insensitive in that I shouldn't perhaps, should also have picked up God telling me that he does know. He knows what the problem is, but he doesn't want to face it. And maybe we could have prayed about that problem, and we could have prayed about the problem of being unwilling to face the issue in a way that would have had a better breakthrough. But maybe we were a bit naive we were a bit kind of, God's revealed what the problem is when he said he didn't know. I'll have to ask Nigel if you remember. I, I really don't know if it's Nigel or Andy, but it was Andy. Okay. Uh, so um, there was that. So there's that, that situation that we kept on praying, and we maybe should have gone in a slightly different route that would have had a better outcome. There was somebody else who. Um, Bronwyn was talking about this girl who's got cancer. There's somebody else who had bad cancer. And we were praying and praying and praying for healing. And then in one meeting, somebody who some of you may know called Sheila just prayed. Um, can't remember what she said. But I just felt God say, it's done. And the cancer was gone. The treatment worked, and the person who was ill survived another 15, 20 years. But it was, it was really significant. We kept praying. We want to see a breakthrough. We want to see a... And then Sheila prayed something, and it was done. And definitely got that very strongly, got that impression that God said, I've done this. It's done. 
there's another time we were praying about someone who was uh, very ill. And we were praying and we were praying and nothing was happening. And then gradually, I remember getting a, a feeling from God that there was some problem other than the illness. That there was some sin somewhere uh, involved in this illness. And I reported it to the church leader at the time. It wasn't this man here, but I reported it. To, and they said, that's very interesting. We're getting that information from other people as well. And it turned out there was a backstory to the whole thing. But you keep praying and you will get an answer. We've got a society that is... Um, an instant society, and if we're not careful, we'll be in that. Okay, so last thing, this is, put it back on, and it should show something else. Yeah, okay, so maybe I should have put this on a slide on its own. This is something, I was listening to Greg Boyd, and he's saying, the attitude that we sometimes have, in the parables... Some of the people who are the kings or the rulers do good things and do bad things. And we very easily fall into the trap of when things go wrong in our lives, sometimes we say, these things are sent to try us. Now Jesus prayed in the big part of the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the inference from that must be that things happen here that are not God's will. God doesn't do nasty things to people. In the characters, you get the lead character sometimes doing nasty things, but God doesn't do nasty things. Jesus said, God is good. You who are evil do good things so much more. God does good. Don't say these things are sent to... God isn't trying to trip you up. He isn't laying trip wires around the place for you to fall over flat on your face. You might go places where there are trip wires. In fact, Jesus was sent places to be tempted by the enemy where there are trip wires. And that's why we say, lead us, but not into temptation, please. Um, don't say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed. That kind of fatalism is not the kingdom of God. That is not the way God works. God says pray. Keep praying. Keep praying. It might be intense in a short time. We've got an immediate problem. We need some bread because my mates arrived. It might be I'm being harassed and I need to be set free. It might be instant. It might be an ongoing. But keep praying and see God's kingdom break through. These are parables. There are lots more parables. Um, we'll get a few more preached about over the next few weeks. But look at these parables in the light of what Jesus says in the wider context, in the light of what is written in the, in the epistles, in, the, in Acts. It's not going to be inconsistent. You can't use parables to do violence and to say, oh, God does violence in the parables. You can't do that. God is good, and God does good things. Close it down, Nigel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you know all about us. You know each one of us intimately. 
you number the hairs on our head and you care very much what happens to us day in and day out. We want to pray that we would learn how to pray. We would learn how to access your mind. We would learn how to reach out to you and see you respond in power and authority. Guard us and lead us, we pray. Amen.